I get myself sorted there. Can you believe that it is December already? <laughs> Where did this year go? I don't know about you, but at this time of the year, I, I, I like to do a lot of thinking about, you know, what happened this year and how the year's gone and just think about things that God has done in my heart this year and do a little bit of, uh, you know, reminiscing. And, and that, that really, in preparing for this preach, I just wanted to share something of a journey that I've been on this year and it's a real privilege to, to be able to share that, so thank you. Um, at the beginning of this year, way back in January, um, I had I had an experience that had a significant impact on, on my whole year, actually, uh, an impact on what I thought about, what I prayed about, what I read and discussed with people, and, um, <laughs> and it all came down to this one event, um, to be precise, Tuesday, January the 23rd. <laughs> What could have happened on Tuesday, January the 23rd? Well, um, I wasn't actually doing anything. I was sleeping at the time. Uh, it was the evening, the night of the 23rd. Uh, but I had a very clear and vivid dream. And I, I don't dream very often prophetically, but when I do, like, I know it's, I know it's important. And um, I had a very clear um, uh, dream, which, which is one way that God speaks to us as, as, as Christians, isn't it, as his children, amongst other ways. And, and even a year later... I'm working through this dream um, and, and, and what it means to me prophetically, but it did set me on a bit of an unexpected journey for the year, uh, one that, yeah, was a bit of a surprise to me, um, but I want to share that journey with you guys this morning, if that's all right. Um, and so this dream starts uh, with the city. Hopefully, can you guys see it all right? It's a little bit, you guys sort of squint and yeah, it works. Okay, so I begin this dream, and I'm, I'm walking through a great city, and I'm with, I'm with some people, and as I'm walking through the city, all of a sudden, the ground starts to shake. You know, like if you're in Wellington, have you experienced the earthquake before the ground starts to shake? And, uh, and this is a really big earthquake, you know, and to the point where buildings uh, are crumbling around me, and I'm like, oh, no, what's going on? And, and I'm in commercial construction, and I, I do a lot of, you know, earthquake strengthening. So straight away, this building goes over, and I can see what's wrong with the foundations. It's lacking foundational strength. And I've straight away, I'm like, I know what's wrong there. Um, and as I'm looking at, you know, this sort of off-the-cuff uh, building inspection, all of a sudden I turn around, and in this big city, there is just a giant wall of water, like a rushing torrent uh, coming towards me. And uh, if you see, it's sort of like, like apocalyptic kind of thing. And it's just like, whoa, and, just, and I'm like, gotta go, and I just run as fast as I can, and like, literally like those guys there, I'm like, this wall is right behind me, and I'm like, oh, I'm not running, and I eventually reach safety uh, in this pristine green field. <laughs> <laughs> I love dreams how you can just go from one, one area to another so quickly, and the sun's shining, and the birds are tweeting and stuff, and, and I'm like, well, this feels good to be safe. But then I get a report because there's, you know, just someone around me who says that uh, about a report about someone who didn't flee, but actually turned and engaged, and somehow miraculously helped many people. And uh, as I, I just had this feeling at that moment of, oh, maybe I could have done more, you know? Maybe I could have been courageous and turned and engaged and seen many people helped. And as I felt this very real feeling, and my dream ended, a voice spoke to me that if it was any louder, it would have been audible. <laughs> uh, 
And his voice just simply said, would you help me free my daughters? Would you help me free my daughters? And I'm just like, what is going on? So I wrote the dream down. I wrote it down, and um, I started praying about it, inquiring about it. And the first thing I did that, that morning was take note of the date. Tuesday, the 23rd of January. Now, as I did a little bit of looking into this date, turns out that Tuesday, the 23rd of January, in 1855, the biggest earthquake that has ever struck New Zealand, well, at least since colonial times, was the 8.3 magnitude Wairarapa earthquake. And it happened on the same day of the week and the same date as I'm dreaming about this. And this earthquake was so big, it shook for a good minute at a, at a really intense magnitude that it completely changed the landscape of the lower North Island. I mean, we're talking, you know, whole mountainsides, you know, being ripped up five metres out of the sea. We're, we're talking about the landscape being completely changed. Um, if you've ever drove, driven from uh, Wellington to the Hutt Valley, which many of us would have, you're driving on land that lifted up in that earthquake that made that safe passage available. Um, swamp land in, uh, in Porirua and in the hut just completely drained straight away as deep layers beneath the surface of the, deep beneath the surface of the ground uh, that had built up over years cracked in the earthquake and all the water drained away so that this land was now habitable and life could emerge. The, the, the harbour in Wellington seabed lifted up to the point where all the jetties on the shore were no good now because it was too shallow for the boats. And so if you've been in Wellington City, I mean, half of that city uh, has this earthquake to thank for it in the sense that um, they were able to reclaim that land and expand, um, expand Wellington City. And also, interestingly, after this earthquake, there was a big tsunami that, uh, that came through, and also, miraculously, there weren't many uh, casualties in the earthquake. And so prophetic people amongst me are all like, yeah, I'm trying to think about this, you know, don't overthink it, but like, but there is, there is a lot going on there, isn't there? And whatever the interpretation is, I think it's probably more of a, a lifelong thing, but the one, the one big thing that I've realized this year that God has really put on my heart is how much the father loves his daughters. Whatever it means, it's in the context of a father's love for his daughters. It's just massive. And there's, there are my two daughters there. And maybe I've got one more on the way. I don't actually know. Maybe it's his son. But the father really loves his daughters intensely more than I could ever love these two, even though I love them with all my heart. And he wants them to step into complete freedom as his daughters. And so, yeah, I've just been thinking this year, praying, unpacking this, chatting with various people. And I have an idea of an interpretation. I'm still kind of open to it. But, but I do believe that the city represents God's universal church. And earthquakes are deep cultural and foundational changes, particularly around the roles of men and women in society and in the church. But strong foundational truths like uh, God's family, adoption, our identity as sons and daughters, grace, the priesthood of all believers. These are foundational truths that keep us secure so that when these big cultural changes sweep through, we don't buckle and bend, but we also engage and stay relevant. You know, so 
But it does, it does ask, we have to ask some hard questions of ourselves sometimes, don't we? If foundationally, what do we believe about some of these issues about men and women and, and, and all these other things that are being talked about in the world at the moment? So there's a lot going on there. Um, the wave is an interesting one. I don't know. I don't, I don't really think of it too much of it as of like an apocalyptic, you know, thing because people turn and engaged and, you know, they were fine, um, although very scary. Um, and interestingly, if, if, if you're into a bit of history, uh, wave, cultural waves in the past, in terms of uh, you know, changes around the roles of men and women, have been described as waves, haven't they? Uh, if, for example, the waves of feminism. You've got you know, first and second wave feminism and so on. You know, first wave feminism, which is all about the temperance movement and the suffrage movement, which, if you're unfamiliar, is like... Uh, you know, push for reforms around alcohol laws and also the right for women to vote and be involved in government and parliament. Well, that had Christian roots because they, most of it stemmed out of the Christian temperance movement, didn't it? You know, these people who, who could see that the harm that alcohol was having on society but didn't have the clout to actually, you know, make any changes. And so the suffrage movement birthed out of that as they pushed for rights um, for women to be involved in those spheres. So I kind of thought of the wave as I interpret it in that way. And you think about 2018, <laughs> you know, you'd have to be living in a, in, a, in, a, in a hole somewhere to not realize that 2018 has been a massive wave, hasn't it? I mean, from late 2017 to all of this year, we've had, you know, hashtag Me Too movement. Even in, it's even reached, you know, commercial construction. You know, we're hiring more women now. We're watching, you know, hygiene in our toilets. We're, you know, we're doing all of these things differently because of these cultural changes and movements. It's been a big wave that's swept through. And my challenge this year has not been to run away from that, but actually to turn uh, and engage. And uh, so there's a lot in there, isn't there? Um, and so I've been carrying this as a bit of a burden all year, really. I've preached a few times, and it's popped out here and there, and I've, you know, prodded certain people and had certain discussions and wrote some thoughts down. And, and, I, and so it's just something like a bit of a, of a healthy burden I've been carrying, that, that God loves his daughters and wants them to step into complete freedom. Now, one thing that I've been learned, uh, one, one important thing that I've learned this, uh, this year as well, is that carrying this burden and, and, and feeling like I want to respond to God in this, I don't think, you may disagree with me on this, but I don't think that it's my job to empower women or see them rise up. You know, we use that language a lot. You see, the thing is, in Christ, they are already raised to heavenly places and seated with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? They are already empowered by grace and the very presence of God. Now, they might not be walking fully in that, but my job is not to empower them. My job is to honor them and say, no, you are a daughter. You know, you are a beloved one. You are in heavenly places. Now, walk in accordance with that, and I can encourage, and, and, but I don't have to take the burden on me of feeling like it's my job to, to do that. If, that. if that makes sense if I'm bringing that distinction, you know? Like, I'm not going to do, do God's job. It's my job to just respond and say, no, no, you are raised with Christ. You know, you are a beloved daughter. You are empowered from on high. Uh, that's what I've really felt my stirring to be this year. Otherwise, you get this kind of weird Messiah complex of like, you know, <laughs> got to empower women. It's like, yeah, we want them to, you want men and women to fly, but I don't have to do anything that God hasn't already done in Him. So, yeah. Um, so, what I want to do this morning, that's been something of my journey. I wanted to share my heart. Got to connect hearts first, don't we? This is, is you know, like, that's really important. But um, 
what I want to share now this morning is just two or three truths that have really hit me this year and have given me freedom and comfort and security to support and encourage and champion women in the church and in, in my life. Now, the jury might be out on how actually you know, helpful I actually was, <laughs> but, but I know my heart's in the right place, and I'm just trying to respond to what I feel God has, has called me to do. So is that cool? So just two or three truths, and we'll work through them, um, time willing. So the first truth is actually, we've already talked about it this morning, which is always great and helpful, um, and that is that God's family is the ultimate goal of the gospel. You know, having that home, having that sense of belonging. Um, I've been hanging out with the Apostle John a bit lately. You know, he's a, he's a pretty cool guy. Um, he's a very interesting guy, actually. Um, the Apostle John, I've been reading John chapter 1 and just studying, um, you know, the introduction and the prologue there. But the cool thing about John, the Apostle John, is he arguably had the most intimate uh, relationship out of all the apostles, you know, with Christ. I mean, he referred to himself as, as what? the disciple whom Jesus loved, you know, like, wow, he just knew he was loved by Christ. And he had one of the greatest revelations of the gospel and the outworking of the gospel and the kingdom coming. I mean, he's the author of the book of Revelation, you know? So this guy, I mean, he, he was connected, wasn't he? He, like, he, he had hookups, you know, he was blessed. Like, he, he was on the inn, you know, he, he knew. And so you have to ask him, okay, well, what's it all about, John? Now, he wrote the introduction to John, and he chose his words so carefully. He crafted his work so profoundly. I mean, he was a deep thinker. I just know that. The first line of his gospel, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that is even just, you could spend weeks on just that phrase alone, and it is beautiful and rewarding to study. So you know that whatever he puts in his introduction, he has really thought about. And so you say, okay, John, what's it all about? What's the outworking of the gospel? Well, he says, King's Church, to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not born out of human desire, but born of God. There's a slightly different version up there. Uh, He gave them the right to become children of God, born not because of any human desires, but God himself was the one who made him his children. That is the end, that's the end goal for John the Apostle, who had like such an intimate relationship with Christ. That's what it's all about. I found it really interesting that he didn't emphasize forgiveness, righteousness, you know, holiness, all of which are outcomes of the gospel in our life. But he said, yes, those things are right there. But ultimately, it's that we might be a son, it's that we might be a daughter, that we might have a standing place, a home, a Turanga Waiwai in the Father's presence. I think that's so cool. It's so good. But not just a place to stand. <laughs> you know, like, a place to, you know, move from, be gifted in and act from, to be a spokesperson for, to, to move, to see the kingdom come. It's like, it's not just a standing place, it's like a launching place, you know what I mean? That's, and that, that place is the prayer that, uh, our Father's house as we minister to the Lord. And so this should create a real profound sense of belonging. You know, this is where I belong. This is exactly what BJ was talking about. Hey, this, this, is, this is where I belong. This is my home. But it also should create a profound sense of connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ, shouldn't it? It's like, well, I belong. Wow, so do you, you know? And I'm going to honor you as such, as a brother 
or as a sister in his family. So that's good. I, I just want to ask the question, you know, is, how do you see yourselves and how do you see others in the church? Is it firmly rooted in Christ as a son or a daughter of a loving father and a brother or sister in Christ, not born from their own, you know, someone's decision, but born of God? I mean, it's a, really, it really helps you to honour it, doesn't it? And, 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 and respect their place in the family. So that's the first thing. That's the first truth I've been sort of looking at uh, this year. The second one uh, is this one here. It takes a little bit of explanation. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Um, where do I get this from? Well, in the beginning... Oh, there's a lot there, isn't there? I might bring it up in a sec. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1... God creates male and female, and in his image he makes them, eh? And he makes them male and female. So, in other words, man on his own and woman on her own don't fully reflect the image of God, but it's something about the unity and the harmony together, as in the Godhead, who is three yet one. You know, it's, it's, it's in that love and that community that they are reflecting the image of God. And so, in that love and harmony, they get given what's called the cultural mandate. And the cultural mandate is what? Two, read the top there. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, this includes marriage and making babies, but it's more than that. It's about walking in the image of God. It's about being his image bearers. In my mind, it's about being blessed and being a blessing. That's what it means to walk in the image of God. At least one thing, surely. I am blessed Therefore, I will be a blessing. God blessed them and said, go, be fruitful, multiply, bless. And in that cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and have dominion, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so he creates Eve to help Adam, and he says, wow, a woman, same of my same, he says. Or same, same, but different, you know, it's like... Man and woman in unity. Now, that was the creation story. What story are we in now? Well, Jesus' death and resurrection is the start not of creation, but of new creation. I mean, the Bible is just chock-a-full of language about new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. John's whole gospel is structured so that the first day when Jesus rises from the dead is the first day of what? New creation. So we're in the story now of new creation. And we have a new cultural mandate from Christ, which is be fruitful and multiply down the bottom there. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with image bearers, those born again of God. And the challenge that I was faced with this year is, well, if it was true in the original cultural mandate that it was not good for man to be alone, but for men and women to be working together, how much more now in new creation is it so important that daughters and sons of the Father are working together to bring about this blessing, to be, a blessed, to be blessed and be a blessing? After all, it's Abraham's family that was called to be a blessing, and bless the whole world, wasn't it? Not just his sons, it was his family. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he said to Abraham. 
So it's not good for man to be alone. What does this look like on the ground? Well, I want to try and share uh, uh, by illustration uh, one example in, in our society that we've seen that I want to try and use as a bit of an illustration like spiritually as well. We'll see how it goes. But there was once upon a time where women had no involvement in politics or government. Now, it was a very much a male domain. Women couldn't even vote for the blokes who were in government. But the thing is, there were issues in society that women were very concerned about. You know, for example, maternal mortality rates were shockingly high. I mean, don't quote me on this, but I heard someone say that, like, in, in, the, in the world wars, like, the same amount, or if not more, women actually died from childbirth than men died on the battlefield. You know, like, the, the numbers were, were amazingly high. But not only that, they had issues, a culture issues around abuse of alcohol and how that was affecting the family. And following women's, uh, women achieving suffrage, which is like political rights and being involved with government, um, legislative changes sweep through and these issues began to be dealt with. So since 1990, they reckon the maternal mortality rate has dropped by nearly half, by 45%. And at the same time, women's involvement in, in government has increased by, they reckon, around 20%. And there's, you, you can do a quick Google search on this and see people discussing and explaining that the best way to drop these things in developing countries today is to get women involved in, in these areas that are typically male domains, all right? Now, is it because men are evil and want women to die in childbirth? No, I don't think so. I just think, yeah, I just think that it's not good for man to be alone and to fully reflect the image of God. It's sons and daughters. It's male and female jointly reflecting um, uh, God's image. And so that, that's a bit of a challenge. That's a hard one to bring, and hopefully I made that somewhat clear. But it's like what it means is as we are called to walk in the story of new creation, as we are called to bring about this mandate of making disciples of all nations, of seeing the kingdom come in, the point is simply that it's sons and daughters, it's male and female, working together in grace, equipped by the Spirit. Uh, it's not like just a, a male domain. Isn't this fun to talk about? <laughs> Hopefully I'm doing my best. But anyway, that is another truth. So that's what, um, and look, if you want a better treatment of that, because that is kind of difficult, there's a brilliant preach by a lady called Jen Wilkins. Uh, and if you just Google Jen Wilkins, uh, Think Theology, she treats this a bit better and, and, and also has some good uh, illustrations of what that looks like on the ground. I'd encourage you to listen to that. So moving on, um, number, two, number three, and I'll finish with this one here, is uh, brothers and sisters. It's this whole truth about the fact that if we are sons and daughters in the church, we are brothers and sisters. All right? And that has huge ramifications and arguably has been the one thing this year that has had the biggest impact on my thinking. You see, if we are, if it's not good for man to be alone, if we are called to work in this together uh, as sons and daughters, then there's going to be some level of interaction between us, isn't there? You know what I mean? We're not working alone. We are, we are working together in this. And as we interact with each other, our, what I've been learning is that our default mindset, our paradigm, our way of thinking, is to treat each other in the church as brothers and sisters. So if there's someone of the opposite sex that you are working with, that you are dealing with, that you're ministering with, they are first and foremost your brother or your sister. 
And that was a big shift for me, to be honest with you, because, like, how do I say this without, I just say it. Um, they are a brother or a sister. They are not a potential moral failure or a sexual temptation in your life that you should risk, that there's a risk that you should guard against. Do you know what I mean? That is not the primary way you should think about members of opposite sex in the church. It is brother and sister. And what is appropriate of a healthy brother and sister relationship in the church? Well, that is, generally speaking, that, that's, that's my measure, if that makes sense. And if I, if, I, if, I am, if I treat someone of the opposite sex as primarily a potential moral failure that must be guarded against, then I'm not operating in love. I am operating in fear. It's a fear-based mindset that says, I could be misinterpreted, I could do something wrong, I'm not sure if I trust myself. You know, it's, it's fear-based. Love-based is, this person is my brother or sister in Christ, whom Christ died for, whom he loves passionately, and who I should honour as such. It's love-based. At least that's the way I've been thinking about it. <laughs> And I can honestly say that this truth has freed me up in a massive way this year. I mean, I felt free to pray and prophesy, encourage women, including and especially my wife, uh, but I've felt free and uh, comfortable to do that with people who are not my wife. I've been able to dial down a level of intensity and awkwardness around, this, around these, and uh, I've been able to deepen friendships as I've found what she's been able to connect with people uh, as, as my sister. And I think it's been great. Now, the past has all been, for me, was all about boundaries and holiness and making sure that, you know, I, you know, I don't do this, I don't get seen with that, or I don't give this person a lift by myself, or all these different rules that I create, which really just push people away. That person is my sister in Christ. Now, we still walk in purity. You know, we don't get weird or we don't be stupid. You know, I have two sisters. I know what's appropriate in a healthy brother-sister relationship. But, like, boundaries are, you know what I mean? So, yeah, purity. We still walk in purity. But then I got thinking this year. I, I, sometimes I think too much, right? I'm just thinking all the time. But, but I think about the word purity. And, and I look up in the dictionary, and the word purity has syn synonyms. Is that how you say it? I say that wrong. I get a bit hungry. Syn synonyms? Right. So righteousness, morality, goodness. These are the words that we are familiar with in the Bible, eh? Uh, and I think about these words like, what do these words actually mean? Now, in our Christian walk, we often understand these words like purity and righteousness in just a legal sense, if you know what I mean. And there is a lot of legal uh, language in the Bible, isn't there? Our moral standing before a holy God, our track record, our purity. And the gospel, particularly from a Reformed background, often emphasizes this when it preaches the gospel, which goes something like this. You are sinful, you are unrighteous, you are impure because of sin in your life. And you will never measure up to God's perfect holy, of, uh, perfect holy standard. Therefore, eternal separation and punishment is your lot because you are impure. Now, Jesus, he didn't leave us in that state, though. Jesus came onto the earth, and he lived in all purity and righteousness. But then he died the death, that your impurity deserved. And he, he says, come and trade places with me. And then he gives you his purity, his righteousness, his track record, and now you are fully righteous before God as a gift. Amen? I mean, that's good. And that's a wonderful picture. 
But it's not the full picture. It's not the full picture. Because you can stand there knowing that you are pure and spotless, but never knowing the joy of stepping into sonship or daughterhood. Daughterhood? Daughtership? One of the two. You know, but knowing your adoption by a loving Heavenly Father. So there is a relational aspect to righteousness and purity and holiness that if we stop the gospel there, we don't step into. It's an awesome thing, and I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Quite a lot. We've been talking about God's family in this church for, for a few years now, and this term righteousness and purity is to be understood relationally in that family kind of way of thinking, if that makes sense. Now, to be righteous and pure means more than just your legal standing before God is clean. Actually, it means you're in right relationship with God. It means you are a part of his covenant people. You're a part of his family. It's to be understood relationally. Think about Galatians 3, right? Galatians chapter 3. Paul, it's one of his most fierce and like letters where he's telling off the foolish Galatians. Why is he telling them off? Well, because they are trying to achieve their righteousness or their purity by acts of the law. They're trying to earn it. They're trying to, they're trying to work for it. But here's the thing. What is the, in Galatians 3 and 4, what is the opposite of trying to achieve your righteousness by works of the law? What's the opposite of that? Being a part of God's covenant people by faith. What just happened there? While righteousness and holiness, if only understood in a legal sense, doesn't help you to get over there, but righteousness and holiness, if it's, a, if it's a covenant term, if it's a relational term, it makes perfect sense. The climax of Paul's argument is you can't be righteous or pure by your own works, but you can be part of God's family, righteous, by faith. See, purity and righteousness is to be understood relationally as much as it is legally. And that's a wonderful thing. And why am I spending so much time on this? Well, when Paul says, treat your brother and sister with absolute purity, he's not just saying, isolate yourself so you don't dig yourself into a hole. He's saying it must be worked out in relationships. It must be with some degree of proximity. You know, to be a brother and a sister means you must be in covenant connection with each other. You're a family. Purity and holiness that says, I can't do this, I can't do that, I've got to isolate you, I can't talk to you, I might, uh, I might, uh, no, 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 and pushing your sisters away, that's not purity and righteousness. Working out these things in covenant family and connection with one another is purity and righteousness. And I've just, yeah, it's, it's relational as much as it is legal. So I've been encouraged, really. It's, it's okay to pray for a woman. It's okay to, 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 to encourage them or prophesy over them. It's okay to get into their lives and support them, all right? Because that is me acting in purity and righteousness. So let's, as an example, I don't know, let's, let's use an example. Everyone, was a Sunday, everyone sort of gets church life. Say, oh, let's, let's have a, a response at the end of a preach and say a big line of women uh, line up to respond and not a single bloke. What do we do? Oh, uh, well, I, 
maybe, I, uh, maybe I'll go and pray for the married one in case I get misinterpreted, misinterpreted or something like that. Like, well, uh, or maybe I'll just get as many women up as I can to pray for them instead. You know, how do, we, how do we respond in that situation? Well, I want to say, hey, look, if I'm sitting here and all my sisters in Christ are up there, of course we want to get women amongst to pray and make sure things are, you know, in all purity. But, hey, why can't I go up and prophesy? Why can't I go and encourage? Why can't I encourage and show, hey, look, there's evidence of grace on your life to teach or to preach or to, to prophesy. I've really noticed that, and you're, oh, you're just doing amazing. I want to encourage you. Like, that's okay in a brother and sister relationship. It's all good. Now, of course, we've got to keep our hearts in check and all the rest of it, but I would quite happily, if my sister responded to it, my blood sister responded to a preach and stood up here, I would go up and lay my hand on his shoulder and say, you are amazing, you're a daughter of God, this is what God's doing in your life, you're awesome, you know, you're a world changer. Because she's my sister. And so, yeah, that's my encouragement, is that we can all do that. We can, we can be, you know, brothers and sisters. And so there's lots of other, you know, examples of how this could work out. But, and, and you might have to think about that and think, well, what, what does that mean for me? You know, maybe it's who I talk to, maybe it's who I'm friends with, but I would just encourage you to just to look a bit broader and think, well, who are my brothers, who are my sisters, and how can I act in love towards them? My goal, ultimately, is to become more like Jesus. And he had, <laughs> gosh, his interactions with women would probably offend us today, let alone 2,000 years ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> He was without sin, but he was tempted in every way, yet he modeled healthy relationships with the opposite sex. There's a woman at the well. What does he do? Uh, shall I get that woman? To... No, he sits next to her. He prophesies over her. He goes back and meets her family. You know, like, this is, this is the sinless and spotless one. Or he's in a dinner party. I mean, Jesus, he was a radical, wasn't he? He was in a dinner party, and a woman who everybody knew walked in, and everybody knows what that means, you know? And what did she do? She let her hair down. She poured oil on his feet and wiped his feet with, gosh, would that make you feel uncomfortable? Like, Jesus says, hey guys, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. So, well, how could you? Well, she's my sister, you know? Like, don't, let's not sexualize everything. She's done a beautiful thing. I love the story of Mary Magdalene after the resurrection as well. This is the last one I'll just bring up here. Who's the first person that Jesus appears to after he is raised to life? Mary. Now, not Mary, his secret wife, <laughs> as some movies and books would have you believe. No, no, Mary, his sister in Christ. You know, Mary, his beloved sister. He talks to her, he encourages her, Gosh, he even gives her a hug. He wasn't scared of being a brother, even at his risk of his own reputation, because they're a brother, they're a sister. So we've got to work that out. We've got to work out what that looks like for ourselves. But I just want, I want to be more like him. And I'm on a journey, and I've got lots of hard things that I've got to work through, but he is, he is the big brother that I want to aspire to be like. Amen? So that's just three truths and, um, that I've been looking at this year. God's family is the ultimate goal of the gospel. It's not good for, for man to be alone. 
and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we bring the kingdom in as brothers and sisters, we'll be more effective and see this cultural mandate of, you know, be blessed and be a blessing to the world more effectively come to pass. Amen? All right, let's stand.